This is the story Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, kingdom builder, healer. He is the King of glory. He is the resurrecting Savior. They expected a conqueror, but instead they got a servant, crucified and lifted high. And the marks on his hands left us marked for salvation. Hey, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Gareth, one of the pastoral team here at Common Ground Durbanville. Uh, really excited that this morning we have our very own Durbanville congregational stream uh, preaching from our venue here during lockdown. Uh, we just thought as lockdown has extended, it would be really fantastic to have some of our own teams, some of our own voices speaking to you. We're still dialed into the citywide sermon series, and so we'll find ourselves in Mark chapter 5 this morning. Uh, so we're not dialed out of that, but we're coming live from Durbanville to you uh, and really, really excited to be with you. I'm going to dive right in uh, to Mark chapter 5. We've got a few verses to read. I'll pray on the other side of that and then we'll begin to unpack it together. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately they met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim him in the Decapolis, how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, 
Won't you open our eyes to see what kind of a king you are and what kind of people you reach out towards? Won't you open our hearts to receive your kingship in our lives, in, in every area of our lives as you come to redeem us and to set us free? In Jesus' name, amen. As I've looked at this passage and prepared for this message this morning, my mind has gone back to when we started off our Mark series. Uh, it seems so long ago, it was pre-COVID-19, uh, but I remember actually preaching uh, the very first series in Mark as we looked at Mark chapter 1. And what we saw is that Mark's big idea that he wants us to get right up front is that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of God, the one announced by John the Baptizer. He wants us to get that right up front because he knows that what's going to come next in some ways might confuse us, certainly confused his first audience the first time they read this account of Jesus' life. Jesus does so many unexpected things. And that's exactly what we're going to see in this passage. And so it's helpful just to remember where we started off. Jesus is the Messiah, the King promised to come and set God's people free, the Son of God, the one prophesied by John the Baptizer. As we dive into this text, there's sort of three scenes that we can look at. Uh, in typical fashion for Mark's gospel, there's a lot of movement to and fro. As you, as you read Mark's account, he loves to track how people have moved around. Jesus and the disciples arrive. Uh, they beach this boat. This man comes towards them. Then we see these pigs rushing off, herdsmen running away, people coming from the town. There's all this movement, and it leads to kind of three confrontations. The first thing we see is that Jesus confronts uncleanness. Jesus confronts uncleanness. Now, we need to maybe background this a little bit because purity and uncleanness are not terms that we generally categorize our world by. They're not uh, paradigms that we look at our world through, but they were vitally important in Jesus' day. See, uncleanness was essentially ungodliness. God had given his people a set of laws to live by. And as you lived by those laws, and as you followed the, the requirements that God had laid on his people, you were in a state of purity. And purity was an indication that you were close to God. If at any point you deliberately moved towards something that was unpure, you would be seen to be turning your back on God deliberately breaking the law, deliberately moving towards people, places, things that were unpure, was the same as saying, God, I reject you. What is so fascinating in this passage is that Jesus, God himself, is the one who moves towards the unclean situation to confront it in love and mercy. We read that they've arrived at the region of the Gerasenes. Now, we're not sure exactly where this boat touched down, but we know it's in a broader region called the Decapolis. The Decapolis means the ten cities. These were ten Greco-Roman cities that had been set up in this region as the epitome of Greco-Roman culture. They had Roman baths. They had Roman temples. They were everything that pagan life could aspire to and therefore incredibly unclean for those who were God's people. 
See, paganism and everything about it was the opposite of being close to God. No uh, right-minded Jewish teacher would head into this region because to move towards uncleanness was to be moving away from God. And yet Jesus sets out for this region. You might recall last week we saw how Jesus said to his disciples, I want to go to the other side of the ocean. He's deliberately heading here. As they cross, of course, he falls asleep. There's this incredible storm. Were they blown off course? Is that how they arrived at this place? Not at all. His disciples wake him in fear. Jesus calms the storm, the sea, the wind, the waves, with barely a word, and they continue on course to this unclean region that he'd had in mind all along. Worse than that, Worse than just being a general region that was unclean, this is a pig farming community. Now, once again, we were a little bit removed from what this means. But for the Jewish people, pigs were incredibly unclean. As part of the law that God had given Moses, there were laws around what foods they could and couldn't eat. And, and we can very easily see that they were given for health reasons. But beyond health reasons, once again, to move away from purity is to reject God. So these Jewish people that weren't allowed to be around pigs at all. You know, today we might think of pigs as cute uh, little animals uh, that are saved from the frying pan by Charlotte and her web. Or maybe you're on the other side of the coin and you kind of were secretly hoping that the pig did end up in the frying pan. No judgment here. Uh, but we tend to have a much more positive view than they had then. On top of the dietary laws, the mascot or the symbol of the Roman legion that was garrisoned in Jerusalem was a wild boar. I can just imagine for Jewish people, as they are walking past the temple, the, the place that is supposed to be the sanctity of their religion, the place where they come to meet with God, walking past these Roman legions, these interlopers, these prosecutors of their people, bringing in pagan religion and pagan gods, symbolized above all by this symbol of uncleanness, this wild pig. And yet this is the place that Jesus chooses to go. His disciples were probably less than thrilled. I can imagine as they land the boat and they just get that whiff of pig manure, how their stomachs must have turned. What were they thinking to themselves? Perhaps Jesus is here to convert some wealthy pig farmers, to, to move them away from uncleanness and back towards godliness. Surely he must be here to meet with someone that is influential and powerful. And Jesus is there to meet with somebody. But it's not the influential or the powerful. It's even more uncleanness. A man with an impure spirit. The essence of being unclean is being opposed to God. And this man epitomizes that with the legion of demons that is inside of him. Spending time in the most unclean of places amongst the tombs. Death made you unclean in the Old Testament and in Jesus' time. Why would that be? Well, because God is the God of the living, not of the dead. Jesus says to the Sadducees, when they debate him on whether there really will be a resurrection from the dead, Jesus says, God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not in the past tense, but in the present tense, the God of the living, not the dead. God is life, and so death is the opposite. Therefore, it is unclean. 
Of course, if a family member died, you would have had to go to a funeral, but you would then be unclean for a certain number of days. If you were a priest that was serving in the temple, you wouldn't go near a dead person. Hence, we see in the parable of the Good Samaritan how the priest crosses to the other side of the road as he goes past the man that may very well be lying dead on the side of the road. He doesn't want to come into contact with anything that is unclean because that is seen as separating you from God. And so we're in this unclean place among these unclean animals with this unclean man living amongst death. And Jesus has gone there for him. He's not just unclean, but he's strong. He's violent. He's self-harming. He cannot be restrained, either because of demonic power within him or perhaps the stress and the adrenaline and the cortisol of being under this constant stress. We don't exactly know how. He has superhuman strength. He cannot be restrained. No one can hold him down. No chains can hold him. He's running most likely naked, we get that because later on the contrast is that now he is clothed in absolute torment, pitiable, and yet not receiving of any pity, harming himself and a danger to anybody that would come near to him. Naked, humiliated, isolated, unclean. This is the man that Jesus crossed an ocean, crossed a storm, to get to. Jesus is not put off by his shame. He's not scared away by his guilt. He's not embarrassed to be in this situation. What kind of king is Jesus, this unexpected king? He's one who would cross an ocean for one unclean person. Whatever's unclean in your life, whatever you're embarrassed to admit, whatever you're ashamed of, Jesus crosses an ocean for the most shameful, unclean person in the most unclean place that you could imagine. That part of your life that you don't show on Facebook or Instagram or nowadays it's the, the top half in Zoom, right? It doesn't matter what the back end of the house looks like. It doesn't matter what you look like from the waist down. As long as from the waist up you look okay, hey, everything is great. It's become easier than ever to live half-clothed lives where what can be seen on the outside looks fantastic. But what is down below the surface, what is below the camera level, below the desk level as we're in our Zoom meeting, hey, who knows what's going on down there? And we don't have to get face-to-face -face with anybody and talk about what's really going on in our lives. We don't have to be open and divulge. We, we have the extra shield of a screen and technological difference. Even as we meet in our life groups, maybe you felt yourself succumb to the temptation to just sweep things off of the table and onto the floor where they're no longer in the Zoom camera lens. We live half-clothed, great from the waist up, perhaps sometimes ashamed from the waist down below the desk level. Well, this man wasn't just naked from the waist down. He was fully naked, fully in shame, fully unclean. I hope that what you get from that is that it doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been, what has happened during this lockdown season, what habits have come to the surface, Jesus wants to come into your life. Jesus will cross an ocean 
to get to you because Jesus wants to confront uncleanness with His love and His grace and His mercy. Jesus doesn't just confront uncleanness, though. He confronts powers. See, there's this power conflict that ensues here. This man and his demons, they come and they cower before Jesus, but it's duplicitous. They cower, but at the same time, there's a sense that they're trying to control Jesus. This man uses a Gentile term, son of the most high God. That's what he calls Jesus. Now, in pagan religions where there were many gods, this is an attestation of Jesus' power. See, whatever your worldview, when you confront Jesus in his power, even if you misunderstand everything else, the one thing that will be abundantly clear is no matter what the worldview, Jesus is at the top. You might believe in multiple gods, but one thing will be 100% clear. Whatever you believe in, Jesus is the son of the most high God. He is at the top of the rung. All the power, all the authority in the situation is coming from him. Yet there's an element of manipulation here. You see, in pagan religion, you would use someone's name to try to control them. That's why the, the demons through this man say, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Trying to manipulate and control Jesus. Of course, in the end, Jesus gets the name of the demon and tells him what to do. But it's paradoxical. They recognize his supremacy and yet try to deny it. They affirm his power but try to deny what he wants them to do. Try to tell him what to do. They try to get Jesus to leave them alone. Now, make no mistake, they know match for Jesus, but these demons are not weak. Their name was Legion. The Roman army, of course, was made up of legions. It speaks of their numerical number, but I think it also smacks of the tyranny and the brutality and the oppression that they have brought into this man's life. It speaks to the nature of their oppression, the suffering he was going through. I'm sure we've all uh, felt the experience of being conflicted and torn in two different directions. This man was literally torn in thousands of different directions, different voices, all speaking in his head, telling him what to do. And Jesus simply sends them out of this man. There's, on one hand, this power encounter, but on the other hand, Jesus is so powerful that they simply beg him to send them into the pigs. And in a dramatic demonstration of his power, he sets this man free. Notice they even have to ask permission in Jesus' presence to go from this man into the pigs. That is how in control Jesus is of the situation. Now, as we look at this, we might kind of ask ourselves the question, well, wh why did Jesus acquiesce to their desire to go into the pigs? Why did he say yes to that? And I don't think we can answer it completely, but, but I, I, I think here's part of the reason, I think. Just imagine that uh, the next day you were going through town and you, you suddenly are startled because you see this guy and you recognize him. He's the guy that runs around naked in the mountains and the tombs and, and, and chases people away and cuts and harms himself and he seems to be in his right mind. And you start to ask yourself the question, well, what has happened to this guy? Is this just a, a temporary thing? Has he just temporarily come to his senses but I actually need to stay away from him because he could relapse at any moment? 
And someone else walks past and sees you look at this man, and they say, well, well hold on, I know what you're thinking. I, I was there when this happened. And I literally saw the change come over him and the change come over the pigs as whatever was tormenting him left him and went into these pigs and drove them wild and they ran into the sea and all of that is now gone. So I can testify that this change in this man is permanent. I think that is some of what is happening as Jesus allows uh, these demons to go into these pigs. It's providing a testimony. This change has happened in this man's life, and he's not just going to relapse in a moment. By verse 15, this man who's unnamed has gone from being naked and self-harming to sitting at Jesus' feet, fully clothed in his right mind, in the position of a disciple. To sit at a teacher's feet is to be in the position of a disciple. See, no matter who you are, and no matter what you've done, Jesus is ready and willing and will cross an ocean to come into your uncleanness. But more than that, no matter what has been done to you, no matter what external forces, no matter what powers may wish to prevent you from coming to Jesus, Jesus has power over those things. Jesus is the king who redeems and who restores who takes us from uncleanness into purity and relationship with God and will do away with everything in our lives that would keep us from Him. Sometimes our sins are many, maybe even legion. Jesus is the King who comes and rules over all of that. Do I, do you really believe Jesus can change me, can change my friends, can change my family members, can change my country. So often we underestimate Jesus and his power in our lives and in the lives of others. Jesus has the power to bring change. An encounter with Jesus changed this man. Is Jesus changing you? Is he transforming you? And if you're not being transformed, have you stopped to ask yourself why? We'll come back to this point later, but for now, let's look at the third confrontation. What we see is that Jesus confronts idolatry. Yet we have this merciful king who's delivered this man from this utter torment, and the man begs to go with him. And once again, Jesus surprises us. He wants to be with Jesus, and Jesus tells him no. And everywhere else that Jesus has performed miracles in people's lives, Jesus has asked them not to speak about it, but yet he tells the man to speak. What on earth is going on here? Well, we need to account for Jesus' ministry. We need to account for Jesus' mindset. You see, Jesus knows that he's ultimately on his way to Jerusalem to a confrontation with the religious leaders and to the cross. He knows the timing of that. And so when he's in the religious leader's territory, he's asking people to keep it a little bit quiet, not to push the agenda along too quickly. Now, most of them can't keep it quiet. Of, of course they can't. Jesus has healed them. Jesus has transformed their lives. But here, where there's no religious leaders within 100 miles, Jesus says to this man, go and tell people what has happened in your life. What about the fact that this man can't come with Jesus? 
Well, again, Jesus is going back to this religious territory, to this region of Jewish people ruled over by Jewish leaders. He knows that this man absolutely will not be accepted as his disciple if he takes him back with him. But this is by no means a rejection of this man. It's a release of this man into this area to be a messenger on Jesus' behalf. And that's exactly what he is. We see in verse 20 that the people marveled at what Jesus had done in his life. Fast forwarding to chapter 7, we see Jesus come back to this region, to the Decapolis. What happens this time? Well, this time the, the people bring him their sick so that they can be healed. They've heard about Jesus from this man. He's been an incredible messenger on Jesus' behalf. If you've experienced Jesus' power and mercy in your life, you should be his messenger. Now, when we read a story like this, it can seem quite hard because this man has undergone this most dramatic transformation. He's been transformed from naked and self-harming to in his right mind and on fire for Jesus. Gareth, my, my life doesn't have that kind of a transformation. Most of the change in my life has been slow and incremental and progressive. Don't let the fact that the change in your life has been incremental stop you from telling others. Don't be scared to be vulnerable. Remember, the message is not ultimately about how we have changed, but about the one who has changed us. This is not about us being superhuman, morally ethical people. It's about a king that has come into our lives and met us in our uncleanness, broken powers that would hold us back, and set us on a new trajectory. The king who came to me at my most vulnerable and showed me mercy. What we see in this passage is not just Jesus as a merciful king, but Jesus as a rejected king. The people here ask him to leave. Why? Why would they do that? Jesus has done something so incredible. <clears throat> he set this person in torment free. This man begs to go with Jesus. They beg Jesus to go. Now, part of it is that they're scared in the same way that the disciples were scared on the boat the previous chapter. Any time you encounter the power of Jesus, fear is going to grip you. Awe is going to grip you when you see who he is and the power that he has. Jesus has just demonstrated his authority over thousands of demons. But the disciples don't ask him to leave. The disciples are more determined than ever to stick to him. Why do they ask him to leave? Well, the key is in verse 16 and 17. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart. You see, by saving this man, Jesus has had an effect on the local economy. Pig meat was prized by the Roman army. They would pay good money to get it to feed their soldiers. This is probably the basis of the local economy. 2,000 pigs is not a small agricultural undertaking. They were feeding an army to feed an empire, and now economic hardship has come upon them because this man has been set free. They don't like that. 
See, they'd rather have this man with his demons out of sight and out of mind, running in the mountains and in the tombs, if they can keep their money. They'd rather have that than see him set free and lose some money. See, the kingdom of God sounds attractive until it encroaches on our lifestyle and our finances. Keep him in the tombs, out of sight, out of mind. We can keep our lifestyle, their priorities are revealed, and their values are laid bare. They've seen what Jesus can do, but they don't want the effect on their lives. You see, there's a form of idolatry that recognizes Jesus' identity, but denies his right in our lives. We actually see it with two groups here in the story. There's an outright rejection of Jesus' authority by legion, and there's an asking him to leave by the people of this region. It's quite frankly a form of paganism that sees Jesus, sees his power, but denies it access to our lives, denies it ultimate dominion over our lives. It's a kind of religious paganism, a kind of insightful paganism. I know who you are. I've seen what you can do, but don't try to tell me what to do. And sometimes that can be us, can't it? I know who you are, Jesus, but don't tell me what to do with my money. I know who you are, Jesus, but don't tell me what to do with my sexuality. You're the son of God. Now speak to me on Sundays, but stay out of my workplace Monday to Friday and my drinking cabinet. You're not welcome there and stay out of my bedroom. These people worship an economy based on pigs. It's their their idol. We shouldn't be surprised that their values are a pigsty. How do we handle the kingdom of God encroaching on our lifestyle, our position, our finances? I said I would come back to that question of what's going on if maybe the change that Jesus has been bringing into our lives seems to have stalled, seems to have stopped. Is it possible that we're doing what these people did? We've seen the power of Jesus in the lives of others. We've seen the power of Jesus in our own lives sometimes even but our pigs have been swept into the sea. Our liberties that we take for granted, our lifestyle choices that we want to continue with are under threat. Is that maybe why the change that Jesus has been bringing in our lives has stalled? Are we more interested in our pigs than in the freedom and salvation of those who are suffering and sometimes even when it is we ourselves who are suffering? Just maybe, questions to ask ourselves. Because Jesus will cross an ocean to come into your uncleanness. Jesus will break through any power to set you free and bring you into right relationship with him. But are you going to tell him to leave when he chases the pigs into the sea? We see here that Jesus is rejected because his ministry exposes idolatry. It exposes our disordered lives, our uncleanness, our naked from the waist down underneath the table where the Zoom camera can't see. Ultimately, Jesus will be rejected by being killed, by being crucified, defiled as he is stripped and tortured and humiliated. He will be defiled worse than this demon-possessed man. They left the demon-possessed man alone to run in the mountains and the tombs, but they attacked Jesus and went after him. 
the reason that happened, the climactic moment that Jesus' ministry was moving towards, which is why he told the people in the land of the religious leaders to downplay his significance, is because Jesus doesn't just expose our disordered lives and our sin and our idolatry. He forgives it. He sets us free from it. Ultimately, every area of our lives that is disordered needs to be dealt with. Not just by going into pigs that rush off of a cliff, unclean spirits meeting their end in unclean animals. Every area of our lives is dealt with as our uncleanness meets his holiness. As our sin meets his righteousness. And as our rejection of him meets his acceptance of us. He becomes unclean so that we can become clean. He takes what we deserve. He gets stripped naked so we can be clothed in righteousness. Jesus loses everything so we can be forgiven and restored and brought into the kingdom. That's what Jesus did for you. Won't you respond by opening every area of your life to him?